John chapter 8, but if we'll go there together and, uh, and then we'll get, we'll get started. Okay, so in John chapter 8, in verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews that believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But this morning we're talking about something that I touched on last week at the end of either Sunday morning or Sunday night about the conditions of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about that this morning, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for this time together. And Lord, I pray today that you would help us focus, lay aside the things that we bring in from the week, as we open up your word together as a church family, Lord, that we, that we get a blessing from what you have to tell us. And Lord, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified today in everything that happens. And Lord, I, play, I pray that our lives would reflect you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we talk about following Christ. Jesus said to follow him. And we have, a lot of times we go through motions or if you were like me uh, in high school and, and from the time I got saved, really in, as I grew older, I, did not, I was not a disciple of Christ. I was saved, but I wasn't his disciple. There's a difference between, between the moment of your salvation and then the growth that takes place that we call discipleship. Man, you could be a disciple of anything. You could be a disciple of, you know, a bulk team or your favorite restaurant or you know, politics or whatever else. You could you be a follower of that. That's all it means. It means that you're following something and that you're emulating it and that you're reflecting it. So when people think of you, they think of whatever you're following, right? Sometimes we're known by things, things that we are able to do, and usually those things are things we're passionate about. And so because of that, that's something that, that we're known by. Why? Because we've allowed ourselves to become a disciple. That, that is not always a bad thing, but it's not always a good thing either. Christ said, if you're going to be my disciple, then there are some conditions. Not about if you're going to be saved, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to become more like me, if you are going to reflect me, if you're going to be a follower of me, then there's some things that have to happen. There's a lot of Christians today that have gotten saved, but they've had no desire or inclination after a certain point in their life, whatever caused them to get to this point is changes person to person, but they don't have an inclination to then become a disciple. Now, if, if you've... So what I want to say about that is, is this. We have a, this specific things in Scripture to follow that he gives us and so the first thing is this. I want you to look. There are actually three points under this, but the first one is Christ tells us that nothing in our life should be more important to us than Him. And He breaks that down in three areas. And that may sound very simple for us as Christians. We may sit in here today and we may say, yeah, I agree with that. And the, and the truth of the matter is, mentally we'll agree with everything this morning that Christ told us. But the reality of our mental ascent and our physical embrace of what we understand to be true sometimes aren't even on the same page. Sometimes we know something to be true, we agree with something to be true, but yet we don't 
initiated or activated in our own life. And so let me go through these and let me say this. If we aren't doing these things, we may, we're saved, but we are not. If you're saved today, but you, we are not being his disciple. So let's go through the first one, Matthew 16, 24. And it's just one verse. We're going to spend the bulk of the message in John 8, so that's why I wanted to give you that first. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said this. Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up the, his cross, and follow me. So the first thing we have to deny, no other thing above Christ in our life is ourselves. And by the way, nothing good spiritually happens in our life until we have taken this first step of crucifying our flesh. Paul the Apostle said that we should take up our cross daily. Paul said we should crucify ourselves afresh daily. And so for us, and, I, and I've said this before, we look in Ecclesiastes and we see where Solomon says there's something I can't, there's a few things in the world I can't understand, but there's one that I don't get. And he said it's when I see a prince walking behind the horse, and I see, and this is my paraphrase, and I see the servant riding on the steed. And he's, he's referring to our flesh and our spirit. There's too many times in our life as Christians when we let our sinful fleshly nature, which we all have, because the day you get saved, you don't become sinless in your human flesh. Right? Your soul becomes claimed and marked by Almighty God, but your spirit, our flesh, we are still walking in a sinful body. So what, what, the, what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes is that we live with the Spirit of God inside of us, but yet we allow our flesh to dictate our actions and our spirit has to follow behind. When in reality... The spirit that lives inside of us and indwells us ought to guide our thoughts, it ought to guide our actions, it ought to guide our motives, and then our flesh is a, should be a servant to our spirit. But for most Christians today, and yes, most Christians today, we allow our flesh to dictate what's going to happen, and our spirit has to take the back seat. And that's the reality, and the very first thing, you want to see revival happen in your home and it can't happen for a national level, it can't happen for a global level, until it happens on a personal level in my own individual life. That is sacrificing my sinful flesh and desires for the preferred will of God. And for letting Him dictate and guide my life. And Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And he under, the, the guys understood that he was walking with them. The ladies understood in that disciple group. They understood, look, I'm, he's not asking me to kill myself on a cross. But he's saying, I am living a life. I am living, Jesus is saying, I am living an example of self-sacrifice. Follow my example. Live like I'm living. I mean, these guys abandoned everything. And just started following him. But just because they abandoned everything, and Peter's moment of salvation, I believe with all my heart, was the day that he, the miracle of the fish happened. We talked about that. And then these guys started following him. But in the midst of their following him, what did Jesus call Peter? The very one that threw his nets down and followed him. Later he said, get thee behind me, Satan. How many times did he have to correct Peter in their three-year journey together while he was in his public ministry before he was crucified? 
And so you have these guys, the guys we refer to like Daddy and Thomas, these men that are the bulwarks of the foundational humans that God used to build the New Testament church and to really launch it. And these guys were full of doubt. They were full of error. They were full of mistake. They were full of misjudging people. They were full of assumptions. They were full of everything that you and I can be full of. And then here's what happened. Through time of walking with Christ, they got stronger and stronger and stronger. But then right when he was crucified, there was none of them new found. His half-brother was there at the cross. That's the only record we have of one of them being there. And we know that because he spoke out to him and he said, Behold your mother, mother, behold your son. He was basically saying, Hey, take care of mom. And when you look at that and you see that story, these men all, even after three years of walking with Christ, they were not there and they abandoned him at the cross. But what happened after that? Man, they got on fire, didn't they? Because then God proved himself. And the darkest part of winter, spring's coming around the corner. And these guys, when they went through the crucifixion and they saw Christ die and they saw what he went through and they thought nothing and then he appeared to them and then he reinvigorated them spiritually and then they started living for him. They, what did they do? They, they took up their own cross. They denied themselves. And they started living for God. Look, our focus should not even honestly be living. The Bible says we should love our neighbor as ourselves. The Bible says we should love others. But our focus should not be living for others. Our focus should be living for God. And if we live for God, then our love for others will be what it needs to be. But if my focus is simply on humans, then I'm, I'm going to be totally I'm missing it just as much as it would be if it were focusing on me. And so... We look at that passage, so first of all, not ourselves. We need to deny ourselves. The second part of this, of nothing being more important to us than God, is no other person. Not just ourselves, but now we put ourselves out of the way. Now, no other person. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto the multitudes. Now, I think it's interesting. A lot of humans, man, they love, we live in the, in the era of getting likes and acceptance, right? Whether it's Instagram or Facebook for the old people or, you know, whatever thing that kids are on now, social media. Everything's about how many likes or follows or whatever you want to call it that you have. It's almost like a drug, too, by the way. People are getting a, a charge out of, out of this kind of nonsense. Here's the thing about it. Jesus was the opposite of this. Any human that would have been talking and teaching and massive crowds start following, it's going to get to their head eventually at some point. Right? So here Jesus is and they're following him. Have you ever been careful what you said about something so you don't alienate a certain part of the people that are listening? I've been there. Christ turns around in this group of people. The Bible says a great multitude in Luke 14, 26, great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So we look at that, and Jesus said it, if you don't hate Everybody, you can't follow me. Do we have a God of hate? No. 
Do we have a Jesus that we... We don't talk about this Jesus, by the way. Do we have a Jesus here that is saying we have to be just 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 terrible against everybody else and casting them out and just following Christ and doing our duty? No, that's not what it's saying. What he's saying is, if your love for me doesn't make your love for them seem like hate, then you can't be my disciple because you have placed them above me. And nothing can be above me. Why? Because he's God. You might say, well, that sounds like a very arrogant thing to say. He's God. He can say what he wants to say. And so when he says that, it doesn't mean like, hey, I don't have time for you. i got to spend time with God. Let me tell you something. When we love God so much that the love for our family seems like, hey, it will make the love for the family astronomically higher than it ever would have been otherwise. Isn't that, isn't that amazing how God does that? If I'm what I need to be in my love for God, then my family will know beyond a shadow of doubt that I love them. But it will be because my connection with God. My mom told us years ago, mom and dad got married when they were 19, and dad got saved at the age of 30. And mom told us, she said, Dad, I didn't realize how he could love me as a husband, ought to love his wife, until after he got saved. He couldn't truly, genuinely reflect that until after he got saved, right? And then, of course, growing in Christ, he was able to be what he should have been for the home. And I think that's with every one of us. We could apply that to every one of our lives. You cannot be for other people, even though he says you've got to hate them. What he's saying is you can't be for them what you need to be until you love me. So let me pause there and say this. If we're not disciples of Christ, even after salvation, if we're not growing to reflect Him, then you're selling yourself short by, by not denying yourself, and you're selling your family short by not denying them. And then he goes on and he says this, no possession. Well, let me finish that verse first, that passage. And he said this, whosoever doth not bear his cross in Luke 14 and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? Lest, haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, The man began to build and was not able to finish. And what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? What's he saying? He's saying, look, in our regular life, if we're going to be successful, we prepare. If I'm going to be successful in war, I'm not just going to go out there with a few people and not have a battle plan, not know my enemy, not know the layout of the terrain, not know fill in the blank. What are you going to do? You're going to do your research. You're going to know things. Who goes to build something and you don't have everything necessary before you start it? You're just winging it. It's like, yeah, I'm going to buy all this lumber, and I'm going to go to the house. Do you have a drill? No, I'll figure it out when I get home. Do you have a saw? I'll figure it out when I get home. Do you have tape measure? Oh, no, I'll, I'll figure it out when I get there. What kind of moron is that? And so what do we do? You prepare. You plan. Okay, what do I need in advance? And yet here we are. We get saved. 
And what do we do? We're just winging it. I'm going to live my Christian life. I'm not placing my affection on things above. I'm not placing my affection on Christ first. I'm more concerned with myself. I'm more concerned with my own personal emotion. I'm more concerned with what I think about me. Let me tell you something. On the first point of denying ourselves, if my worldview is centering completely around me, then that's the first, like, you can't even do the rest of this. You can't be a disciple of Christ. You can't reflect Jesus Christ. You're hiding your light. We're not going to be what we need to be until we can set aside our own pride. And that shows up in many parts of our life. It shows up when we're, when we're talking to someone else and, and we get upset about nonsensical things we've allowed. What have we done? We've allowed our flesh and our pride to step in front. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to couples and they come to the, they come to the table and you're trying to mediate and help them and there's always one pointing finger at the other one and there's always one and it, both sides are doing that and they're never going to come to an agreement. They're never going to meet. They're never going to make things right. Why? Because they're both so wrapped up in their stinking pride and neither one of them is willing to set aside their own human flesh and sinful nature, which we all have. Man, I learned a long time ago that the first person to come to you, don't take that as the entire story. Because there's not just two sides, there's usually three and .56 sides. Because there's going to be multiple angles of this, and you need to just come, and you need to get people in front of each other and say, you need to talk it out. And if you have the love of Christ in you, you're going to be willing to suck it up, and you're going to make things right with somebody. My goodness, I can't imagine having such, such hate or bitterness bound up in my heart that it was impossible to have a heart of forgiveness. If I can't have a heart of forgiveness for somebody, then that is the ultimate, absolute definition of not being able to crucify my own personal flesh. Because I'm bound up. It's about me. You have hurt me. This is all me. And it's me, 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 me. Instead of saying, you know what? Enough of me. Christ gave himself on the cross. So what if you have maligned me? So what if you've spoken ill of me? So what about this? It doesn't matter. Oh, you haven't seen me. Oh, you haven't called me. Oh, you said this about me. Get off your high horse. We need to step down off of that. We need to know Christ went up on a cross and He gave His life for us. And Jesus said, if you can't, if you can't follow, if you can't crucify yourself, you cannot be my disciple. You can be a Christian, but you're being a worthless Christian that's saved yet so as by fire because you're not reflecting my heart because you've made it about yourself. And when you see that kind of thing, man, guys, we can't. We cannot even begin to be what we need to be until we get victory over our own pride and over our own flesh and we take the story and the story's not about us. I had somebody say one time, when you write, this is back before, you know, cell phones and texting and emails. When you write someone a letter, some people are like, what's that? I said, I've never heard that. What's a letter? When you write a letter, try to write somebody sometime and never use the word I, me, or my, or mine. By the way, it's pretty, it's pretty difficult to try to write someone 
and make it not, and it doesn't mean if you ever write one and it has that in it that it's terrible. It just means if you have to take conscious effort to reword the entire thing to make it about them. You ever genuinely have a conversation with someone and in the conversation, and we've all done it, you're waiting to just give your opinion? Now sometimes, now sometimes that is some people's way of relating to a story, Right? And I, and I can respect that. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we need to be able to have a conversation with people and authentically ask a question and authentically wait for the answer and listen and authentically continuing asking questions and lead, have a whole conversation with somebody and not even mention you or yourself or your own experience. Just talk to them. Let them talk. Of course, if both people do that, nobody's talking. But you know what I'm saying. If we have that conversation with somebody, take that chance, take that moment, and, and, and invest in other people. Man, some of the people that we all come to our mind that we, that we think of as some of the kindest and sweetest people in the world, what kind of people were they? Giving. Giving people are selfless people. They just do because they, they, they just like to make other people happy. They don't think of themselves. Jesus said you've got to crucify your own desires. You've got to set your own. And now, granted, most of the time this is talking about our sin life. Then he says you've got to do what? You've got the love for other people. You can't, you can't set people up on a pedestal so much and you follow just them. If, because then when they violate the word of God, you're just continuing following them down the wrong path. It's all, it should be about Christ. The third thing is our possessions in this Luke 14, 33 says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. So the first thing, he did not mean that we have to literally crucify our body. He did not mean we have to literally hate our family. And he did not mean we had to literally throw away everything and abandon it and live in a commune and follow him. What's he saying? He's saying if your possessions are so valuable to you that they alter the love of them alter you following God, then they have become an idol. The Ten Commandments literally tell us, you shall have no other graven images for me. The Bible says you sh you, over and over again, you cannot make an idol of other things. If you, another person, or one of your possessions are placed above the importance of God in our life, they have become an idol to us. I've heard some preachers say, because they don't reverence the Word of God enough, and they say, well, the Bible has become an idol to you. How can I make Jesus an idol to me? Jesus is my God, and Jesus is the Word made flesh. So the Word of God reigns supreme in my life, and we're going to come to that in just a minute. And so this, first of all, nothing in our life should be more important to us than God. Second, Jesus says that we ought to continue in his word. In John 8, 31, it says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. So he's speaking to the Christians. By the way, if he's speaking to the Jews, a bunch of Jews, a multitude, and he says to them, those that believed on him, he says. He didn't literally say, hey, believers that are in the crowd right now. It meant that in a multitude of people, the words he was about to speak, he was speaking to certain people in the crowd. And the people in the crowd that were hearing him were already believers. 
and they were listening. But there were other people in the crowd, in the same crowd we're about to read, that were not saved. That's why when he turned around and spoke, there were, there were thousands of people, and he's speaking only to the ones that he knew were saved. And this is what he said. If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And so he said, if you continue, that means if you abide, that means if you live in my word. I can't make an idol of the very book that God tells me I have to live in. Because he is the word made flesh. So here he says to the believers in the crowd, he said, hey guys, if you abide in my word, if you continue in my word, if you live in my word, then you are indeed my disciples and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Okay, now look at the answer. This is awesome to me. So the unbelieving Jews answered him. All right, now it doesn't say that, but we know at the very beginning, Jesus says he said this word to the believing Jews. Then it says, they answered him, we be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the Son abideth forever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. So he's saying, I'm the Son. Right? Because he said, if you'll abide in my word, you'll be free indeed. He said, I know that you're Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me. He wasn't speaking to the believing Jews right now. Because the ones that answered him out of that multitude were the lost. That weren't hearing him. And he said, you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word hath no place in you. Let me put this on a Christian perspective. How sad is it today... We understand that the lost world, that the Word, the Word of God, the words of God, the truth of God's Word has no place in a lost person, right? We understand that. But how sad is it when a believer doesn't reverence the Word of God or read the Word of God or live by the Word of God? How sad is it that a believer acts like the lost? And he says to them, to the whole crowd, he said, you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. You can't handle the truth I'm speaking right now. Why? Because, you're, because my word, you're not believing what I say. How often do we have lost people try to correct Christian activity by using their own word, most 99% of the time out of context. The book, the Bible, is written for you and I. Now, we are to go and take, as we said a few weeks ago as children of light, we are to go and take this word to the lost so they can also see the truth and so that they can be saved and so that they can become the children of light. But yet we don't utilize it. We're not in it. We don't love it. We don't read it. And when we don't, then we resent and we rebel against the words of God. When I'm not reading it, and this is, speaks out to my life and convicts my heart, why do you think we get angry? 
Why do you think we get resistant? Why do you think these kind of things happen? Because the Word of God's not in us. Jesus said, you seek to kill me because the Word has no place in you. He said, I speak, in verse 38 of John 8, that which I have seen with my Father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your Father. (laughs) Now he's about to make him mad. He said, look, I'm just telling you the words I see with the Heavenly Father, God the Father, and I'm the Son. He said, you're doing what you do with your Father. And then here's their answer. They answered, they said in him, Abraham's our Father. Jesus saith unto they're talking about their, their ancestor. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Abraham didn't do this. You say you're of Abraham, you're not acting like you're of Abraham. You're seeking to kill me because I speak truth. That's not the way Abraham acted. Ye do the deeds of your father. And they said back to him, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus then said unto them, if God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. He's saying in that passage, he's already, he's already spoken to the believers in the crowd. He's like, hey, if you're my disciples, you're going to abide in my word. And then the lost speak up in rebellion to him. Well, what about, yeah, but what about, yeah, but what about? And the believers in the crowd are hearing everything he's saying, and it's clicking. And then he says to him in the middle of that, he says, why don't you believe me? Because he said, you're not of God. If you were of God, if you had believed, you would hear what I'm saying and understand it to be true. But because you're not, you're of Satan. How bad is it, how sad is it when our affection is on our own pride, our own possessions, other people, other people's words, our own opinion, our own emotion. Well, preacher, I think if this sin is okay because those are good people or this is a good situation. or that, Let me tell you, the Word of God reigns supreme in our life and, the, and we ought to let God be true and let every man be a liar. And if, if our actions as a Christian violate the Word of God and we're not correcting that, you may be saved, but you're not becoming like Christ and you're certainly not going to be a light to a dark world. And so we go on, and Jesus says to them, they said to him, then answered the Jews, said unto him, say ye not well, say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Man, you're crazy. 
We, we knew you were crazy. We were right to say that all along. And Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my Father, and ye do dishonor me, and I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. And then said the Jews unto him, Now we know thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our own father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom makest thou, whom, whom makest thou thyself? And Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like you. But I know him, and I keep his saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say truth. He said, True. I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Yeah, I know Abraham, because I existed before he existed. Who do you think communed with him? Yeah, I knew him. I've met him before. I've talked to him. I know what he believed. And at this point, they took up stones to cast at him. Okay, now, they, here's the thing. They hadn't picked up a stone yet. And yet Jesus already said to them, you want to kill me because, you, because you're not hearing me and you're of your father the devil. You know why he said that? Because he knew their motive. He knew their heart. He's like, you're sitting out there right now and you want to kill me. And it wasn't until they, they brought it to pass and they picked up those stones that they actually acted on it, but it was already in their heart. Now, what does Jesus say? Whatever's in your heart, this is already, what's coming out of you is what's defiling you because it's already, you've already made your mind up to believe that. So how often as Christians do we live our life, not only do we put things ahead of God, but we don't abide in His Word. We don't reverence His Word. If the Word of God is not the arbiter, the sole arbiter of truth in our life, then we have placed ourself, our own emotion, our own opinion, and our own mental thought above the Word of God. It ought to dictate your life. It ought to be how, why you make your decisions. It is absolute truth. And by the way, the lost world hates that. They, they hate it. Why? Because the world, and this hasn't changed, this isn't novel and new to 2021. The lost world, since the beginning of time, has hated anything being final and absolute. They want things to change constantly. They love gray area. They want to abide in a gray area. They want to live in the gray area. Because that way they can self-justify. That way they can justify their own sin. That way they can justify their own opinion. And they don't have to acknowledge the Word of God. If you ever take the Word of God and you say, well, the Bible says clearly this, but you know what? I'm going to reason that away and I'm going to be okay with that not existing. Then what you've done is you have made a God out of yourself. And when that happens... And the Word of God is not supreme. The Word of God is not the final authority. If you're saved, then there's no way you'll ever 
reflect Jesus Christ until that changes in your heart. And then the final thing is this, he says, in John 15, 8, seven chapters over, he says, herein is my Father glorified. Now, by this time, he's speaking to just his disciples. He says that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Nothing above me. The Word of God has to reign supreme, and you have to live in it. And then you need to bear much fruit. I'm going to put the fruit on twofold here, level. One, as we walk in the Spirit, and as the Word of God marinates inside of us, and the Holy Spirit has more power and control in us, then there is going to be a natural fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians that starts emanating out of us. We start, ref- we start just dripping with fruit, like, like Psalm 1. And that's love, joy, peace, patience. You understand the rest of them. Those things grow together. They don't grow one at a time. So the more we are in the Word of God, the more that grows. One of the things I love as a pastor is to watch people that I don't even talk to on a daily basis, but when you watch spiritual growth take place in their life, it's a sign of one thing. You're in the Word of God. When you're in the Word of God, you become, Psalm 1 says, like a tree planted by rivers of water. And you're, giving, you're going to give forth your fruit in your season. Not only should we bear an internal fruit in ourselves, but just like we should deny ourselves, our, but we should also deny others above God, not only should we bear fruit in ourselves, but also we will bear fruit outside of ourselves. We'll bear fruit with other people. What happens when, when a tree does put the fruit out and the seeds from that fruit go back into the soil? What does it do? It creates another tree. Right? Sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it does. So what's the goal here? We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians says this, If you're saved, you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Not you can be, not you should be, but you are definitively an ambassador of Jesus Christ. We have a heavenly kingdom. Our home is another country. We are on this world, in this sinful world, and we are walking around in the embassy. You yourself is an embassy in this lost world because our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are housing the presence of God. We are walking around as Christians, as ambassadors, representing another country. And that is, you know, when you go into an embassy, that's sovereign territory. Did you know that? Do you know that in, in another country, wherever you find, if, you, if you're in trouble, go to the American embassy. Once you get in the embassy and you show proof of citizenship, they can't get you or they can't touch you. At least they shouldn't be able to. That is supposed to be sovereign territory. You know as a Christian, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ and we're walking around in the embassy which has been claimed by God Almighty. You have been sealed by the Spirit of God until your day of redemption. You have been stamped with the image of God until your day of redemption. And we are here left on this earth because we are ambassadors of our Savior. Now, Paul told the Corinthians, which was full of problems in that church, it was a sinning church, and he told those Christians, he said, you are ambassadors, and because you are, you need to be reconciled to God because of what he's done for you. What does that mean? He's saying, hey guys, you're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Get your heart right. Get right with God. Because you represent him. And he's saying, you need to to shape it up. 
You need to shape up so you can go out there and you can get things done for God. Because our job is to replicate ourselves. Our job is to produce fruit. Our job is to go and tell other people about Jesus Christ. That's our job as a church. Our job is not just a social club. Our job is not just to come in these doors every Sunday and Sunday night and Wednesday in activities and we do everything here. Yes, as a church family, but our purpose is to go outside of these in our regular everyday life and to make a difference. In the Roman Empire, there were temples to Diana and false, and false uh, gods that were sitting empty because people were getting saved and they were going out and just living their Christianity among other people. And when they had opportunity, they would answer because the Bible says be ready always to give an answer of the truth that's inside of you. And so we are to live that out. That is the disciple of Jesus Christ. And by the way, once you start with the denying of yourself, then you get into or everything, and then you get into the Word of God, the actual natural result is you're like, well, I just don't know. I can't. Yeah, you can. Because the natural result is for it just to come out of you and to impact other people. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you, Father, that you have died for us and sacrificed yourself and rose again so that we can know heaven as our home. Lord, there's no reason for us to doubt and struggle and wonder as a believer whether we are saved or whether we are secure or whether we are... That's not how you intended our life to go. We thank you, Father, for your sacrifice. We thank you for the assurance of our salvation. We thank you, Lord, that we are given clear directive and plan in your word of how we can live our life to reflect you. And Lord, there's no greater purpose, and we thank you for that. And I ask you, Lord, that you would help me to be able to put aside my own personal flesh and pride, and that as we move forward in our life, that we consume ourselves with you and your word and reflecting you and taking your message to others. Thank you, Father, for your work in our life. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.